Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious mercies and blessings. And as we come before you tonight, we pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Fill us, Lord. Help us to walk humbly in thy sight. In Jesus' name, amen. As we begin chapter 17, we need to begin with a quick review of chapter 16. And as you see on the screen, in chapter 16, we had seven angels pour out their bowls, and they were filled with the wrath of God upon the wicked. Now, it appears that they fall in a year. It says one day. Now, some believe that's a literal day, but we have reason to believe that it's using the year-day principle. It doesn't mean that we're talking about the uh, prophetic time as referred to as leading up to the cleansing of the sanctuary. But the principle is still there. How do we know that? Because a lot of these things, if they were all to fall at one time, they'd all be dead. They'd wipe out the whole world. But some of these people experience a number of these things. So there's still debate as to uh, how long, but it could be anywhere from a day to a year. We have reason to believe it's a year's time. First, the foul sores fall upon the beast, it mentions, those who have the mark of the beast. Second, we find that the, the sea turns to blood of a dead man and the creatures die. Now, remember we said the blood of a dead man coagulates and it's kind of a purplish black, if you want to call it that. And the third plague, when it's poured out, It was poured out on the rivers and the springs turned to blood. Now, apparently, this is red. I'm just assuming. I'm assuming it's running water, so it would be red running blood, whereas the other is coagulated more. Look at the fourth. We find that men have been worshiping the sun and seeking to observe the the sun's day over the Lord's day. And notice that the sun scorches men. And in turn, instead of praising God, they blaspheme him. Then the fifth plague. The throne of the beast is in darkness, and the people claw, it says, or chew their tongue with pain because they have not repented. Much of this, I'm sure, will be guilty conscience, realizing that they have rejected and wasted the the forgiveness of God. Then the sixth. The Euphrates dried up for the kings of the east. Now remember that when King Cyrus conquered Babylon, first thing he did was divert the water of the Euphrates. And then he was able to take it. And he was a prototype, you might say, or a type of Christ. When Christ comes back again, he's coming from the east to conquer to conquer and defeat Babylon. And notice it mentioned about three frogs that preach to lead men into a worldwide Armageddon, a worldwide battle. And these three frogs we, uh, we talked about before. A frog, you know, hibernates. It hibernates, and it's there, then it's, it's dormant for a while, then all of a sudden it's there again, croaking away. And it talked about the three main forces that would try to prepare people for 
the battle of the Lord. Apostate Protestantism, Catholicism, and Spiritism, or Spiritualism. And these three forces working together are deceiving people into thinking that they can have a man-made religion. They can get along without God. Look at the seventh plague. Notice that Jesus says here, it is done. Remember on the cross, he said, it is finished. When he finished the phase of his work as the Lamb of God and could die no more, it was finished. That part of his responsibility was done. Then he became our high priest in the heavenly court. Now his priestly work is done. And he's coming as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The earth is in a very violent nature at this time. We find that Babylon is punished for its sins. But the righteous are protected. Even with the violence that's going on, the righteous are protected. Christ comes and the panicked wicked, they die in the process of fleeing to get away from his presence. And so that was a lot that was covered in that 16th chapter. As we move into chapter 17... The first few verses are introductory in a sense. And we find that with dramatic instinct, the prophet paints his world pictures. We see a woman who sits upon a scarlet beast. On her forehead was the name with a sacred meaning, according to the New English Bible. She's decked in royal purple and shameless scarlet. Her title Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of the earth. As we look at this, the first six verses will describe the appearance of this woman. Verse 1 says, And there came one of the seven angels who had the seven vials. These were the ones that were carrying the, uh, the plagues, right? And they talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither. In plain words, come on up here. I want to show you something. And I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. I will show you this scarlet woman. And you come and look. She sits on many waters, waters representing many people, right? And she will rule over them. And look at verse 2 with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now notice this word wine. The word wine is very important. This isn't grape juice. This isn't Welch's we're talking about here. This is the reason why we need to understand that fermentation is a sign of decay. Right? It's, it's something that's breaking down and decaying, corrupting. And so is leaven, a symbol of decay. Now, leaven does have positive uh, implications in the Bible, too. Uh, but in the case of the communion bread or the uh, uh, Passover bread, leaven represented sin. And so we find that Using leavened bread and leavened wine in a communion service is actually 
to corrupt it, you see. And we need to be careful of that because there are some people who believe in using those kinds of things. But notice here, the wine she has is the wine that leads to a, a person being intoxicated. It, it clouds their thinking. Thus, it becomes part of confusion or Babylon. Now, what about this woman? The language is impressive, and yet we must ask, who is the woman? She's called Mystery, Babylon the Great. Now, notice it doesn't say Mystery, Babylon the Great. It says Mystery, Babylon the Great. This Babylon is full of mysteries. They claim to believe in secret powers to do things. I mean, let's face it, if you can take a piece of bread and a cup of wine and make it actually into the body and blood of a human being, and everybody sees it as bread and wine and tastes it as bread and wine, but you say it's the actual body and blood of a person, you're asking them to believe something other than what their senses tell them, right? You're asking them to mystically believe something. And we find that there are many of these mysteries that are in this Babylonian religion. And notice, there can be no doubt as to her identity. As we've already noticed, the woman in prophecy represents a church. The woman in chapter 12 is a beautiful symbol of the true church of Jesus Christ. But this woman in chapter 17, she's corrupting character, She's deceptive in nature, and she contrasts in every way with the virtuous woman. God likens his people to a comely and delicate woman, or to a woman dwelling at home. Notice that. A woman dwelling at home. That's in the margin of Jeremiah 6, 2. You know what that's saying? Ladies, I hate to tell you this, but if someone comes up to you and says, You are a very homely lady. You should say, well, thank you. That's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. Because you see, the word homely today means something a little different. In those days, the word homely meant, this is a lady I'd like to have living with me. I'd like to have dwelling with me. She's a lady that stays at home. She doesn't go running around town. You see? And so, when it's, notice the margin there, it says, a woman dwelling at home. And that was a symbol of a virtuous woman. So, the word homely, if anybody ever tells you you're homely, you just say, thank you, you are so sweet. And they'll probably give you another compliment. (laughs) Okay. But this woman is not dwelling at home. She's running around town. She's a lady of the night. Instead, she is courting the kings and living in illicit relationship with the world. She's not attired in fine linen, which is the righteousness of the saints, it tells us in Revelation 19.8. But she's living lavishly in purple and scarlet. Now, you've got to realize that purple... Remember Lydia? She was a seller of purple. Purple was a very expensive thing. To buy purple cloth, you needed a lot of money for that. It came from a a mollusk. 
that was hard to uh, to get and to harvest. And so it was a sign of wealth, of prosperity. And red is a sign of sin as well. And she was decked in gold and costly jewels. As far as the world was concerned, she was dressed like a Cupid doll. Okay? And John saw her also drunken with the blood of the saints and of the martyrs of Jesus. Now he's viewing this apostate church subsequent to the centuries of persecution. Here he is, he's looking back at her past history and all the blood that has resulted as a result of her. And notice that the woman has a cup in her hand and the woman is riding the beast. The one who is riding the beast is the one who's in control of the beast. And as we look at this, we find that she's holding this cup. It's full of abominations. Now, it's interesting. I got another sermon. I got about five or six different sermons going at the same time. But one is on abominations. What are the abominations of the Bible? There are several different things that the Bible mentions, but I like to explain it this way. An abomination is something that makes God sick to his stomach. That's what an abomination is. And one of those is idolatry. And in the scriptures, the word abomination can be a lie, a graven image, a false god. These are all used synonymously. They're interchangeable. And by the way, the Bible uses several words interchangeably. For one thing, the word idolatry and adultery are interchangeable terms. You don't commit adultery until you have made that person an idol, you see, in your life. And here we're talking about spiritual adultery because they are chasing after idols or false gods, you see. And you can look at uh, 1 Kings eleven seven, verses 2 and 3 also. Isaiah 45, 15, 19, and 20. Now this is not the cup of salvation. There are several cups mentioned in the Bible. David talks about the cup of salvation. And it was his old prayer that he, he had the cup of salvation in Psalm 116, 13. But this cup is full of false gods and lying abominations, such as the counterfeit doctrines of the false priesthood, which claims power to forgive sins and to decide cases. I have this book at home, St. Alphonsus de Ligari's book, The Dignity and Duties of the Priest. He wrote this, I can't remember the date, but I think it was the 1600s. But notice this is the 1927 edition that this is from. Very interesting reading. It's still in print today. And notice what he says on page 27. The priest has the power of the keys or the power of delivering sinners from hell, of making them worthy of paradise, and of changing them from slaves of Satan into children of God. And God himself is obligated to abide by the judgment of his priests, and either not to pardon or to pardon. 
God has to obey what the priest says. Well, you know, if that is true, wouldn't it be Christian love if the priests would just free everybody from hell and free everybody from purgatory and save God the trouble instead of having to pay them indulgences to get out? And notice, this is blasphemy. He's saying that God is obligated to obey the decision of a man. That used to be called blasphemy. I don't know what we would call it today because the world is not speaking against that. Diligari also goes on and says, when St. Michael comes to a dying Christian who invokes his aid, the holy archangel can chase away the devils, but he cannot free his client from the chains till a priest comes and absolves him. Who is Michael? Isn't that Jesus? He's saying even if Jesus, Michael, the archangel, the word archangel means the head over the angels. Michael means the one like God. There's only one like God who is the head over all the angels. If he comes, everything has to stand still. If a person is dying, they have to, I'm sorry, you'll have to wait because the priest is going to be here in half an hour. You, You see, there are things here that present a problem. Another thing that creates problems, and the, the woman had a golden cup in her hand. One of the most vital doctrines in this apostate church is the daily sacrifice of the Mass. Now, you need to understand that a Mass is not like a church service. You see, a church service is different. A Mass is a sacrifice. It's built around the communion service. In most Protestant churches, we have a communion service. But this is different because there is grace to be dispensed attached to that Mass. And so it is called the sacrifice of the Mass. The wafer, the little round wafer, is the golden monstrance they claim is the living Christ. This is the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, for a long time, they, they only give you the bread and not the wine because they're afraid you'd spill the wine. Other times, wine has been given with it. But notice that sacred is the doctrine of transubstantiation to the devout Roman Catholic. It surely is idolatry to say that this piece of bread is actually the creator of heaven and earth. Now, you've got a problem because that bread and that wine does not actually become the body and blood of Christ until the priest says, hocus corpus meum, right? And when he says that, that magically turns into the body and blood of Christ. You know what this is saying? This is saying that the creature has the ability to create the creator. You see. And De Ligore has a lot to say about that, some of the dignity of the priest. 
As a matter of fact, you may not, may not be aware of it, but in Catholic literature, the priest can do some things that Mary can't. The priest is actually above Mary. And that's pretty, you know, I mean, Mary's elevated pretty high, right? She can only give birth to the Messiah, but the priest can create the Messiah. You see? And so we find that there's problems with transubstantiation. Rather than being symbolic of the body and blood of Christ, they try to make it actual. What does that do? That takes the emphasis off of Christ's sacrifice and it puts it on the priest. The priest now becomes the center of that Eucharistic service. Even though he says it's the body and the blood, that's the center of the service. The body and the blood is nothing without the priest changing it, you see. So there's a shift of emphasis here. And the symbolism does not properly reflect Christ, especially when you're using fermented bread and wine or leavened bread. As we look at this further, now please understand, I am not talking about the Catholic people. I want you to understand that. God loves the Catholic people. I want you to know that they are my most favorite people to give Bible studies to. Because once they see what the Word of God says, and they see what they have been taught, the affection and the loyalty that they had for forms and rules and regulations, they now transfer over to the Word of God and to Jesus Christ. And they become among our strongest uh, Bible advocates. And so what I'm talking about is the theology and the history in this. And I please get this uh, straight in your mind. Since her deadly wound, which she got in 1798, when the papacy was uh, arrested, she's fought her way back to prestige and power. Perhaps nothing has contributed more to her recovery than to have the International Eucharistic Congresses held throughout the world, in which the elevation of the Eucharistic Church is the dominant point of the whole proceedings. And that is spreading wide. Let's look at verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Seven heads and ten horns. Hmm. Did we run into this ten-horned beast before? Wasn't that Rome, if I remember correctly? Now, notice it has seven heads. That's interesting. How many horns were plucked up from that Roman beast? Three, right? Anyway, she's riding this beast. And notice in Revelation 17, 4, it says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Filthiness of her fornication. What is this? She is in an idolatrous relationship blending False religions together. Paganism. Even buying and selling the grace of God. 
for indulgences and all. This is what Martin Luther got upset about. Look at verse 5. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abomination of the earth. Now, the very fact that this refers back to the mystery religions and refers back to Babylon shows that this is very ancient. We're not talking about just the New Testament church. We're talking way back that the roots of this Babylonian religion, the roots of the mysteries, have had very ancient roots. As a matter of fact, they will go down to just after the flood, you see. I'll touch on that in a moment. She had a name written, and I mentioned Mystery Babylon the Great. When the mystery cults of ancient Babylon came into the church, the foundation for the mystery of iniquity was laid within Christianity. An emphasis, we talked about that earlier when we were talking about the, uh, the seven churches. The mysteries took the form of religion only a short time after the flood and were a definite attempt to destroy the knowledge of the true God from the minds of men. One of those mystery religions that had ancient roots was Mithraism. Mithraism was a religion that the armies used. The Romans, it was sun worship, it was a counterfeit gospel, and it was observed by the men in the military. For the most part, that's where it had its biggest following. And they wore on their heads a little hat. What was unusual about that hat? It kind of flopped on one side. What do we call that today? A beret. Huh. Are there military forces today that use a beret as a part of their uniform? The green beret, etc. This is actually a carryover from Mithraism. The military religion, you see. Now, after the flood, a character comes on the scene by the name of Nimrod. And as you can see on the screen, Nimrod, the Bible tells us, was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He had a wife named Samarimus. Samarimus had a child by the name of Tammuz, with a U-Z. Okay? Nimrod died. And she did not want to lose her power. Therefore, she concocted the idea that he had died and gone into the sun and become the sun god. And that he impregnated her after his death and she gave birth to a child. And that child was to be the son of God. You see where this is going? This is part of the mystery religions of ancient Babylon. It has its roots in Nimrod worship and worship of the sun god. In Genesis 10:9, it says, Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, began the kingdom of Babylon. Now you need to realize he began the kingdom of, of Babylon. But it was really Samarimus 
who built up Babylon and built up the Babylonian religion, you see. And we find that this legend has it that upon his death, his depraved and licentious queen, eager to hold her influence over the people, instituted certain rites in which she was worshipped as a goddess. And she took the name of Rhea. And you can look in uh, Greek mythology and you will read about Rhea. And you look at these ancient religions and they're very similar. She was called Great Mother of the Gods. And this Chaldean queen is a fit prototype of this woman that's mentioned here in the Apocalypse. And on whose forehead is named the name Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Many of all of the false religions that you can think of today can be traced back to that early religion. This is a statue of Rhea that is still in existence today. It has been made. And you can see what she got in one hand. She's holding up a bowl, isn't she? Or a cup. And she has the sun radiating out of her head. Today, we would call that a halo. Did you ever notice that a lot of the saints have halos around them? All right, radiating out. In her hand is that round object. I'm not positive what that is uh, that she's holding in her hand. But anyway, this is one of the statues that they have of her. Now, when John saw her, she was drunk. She was intoxicated. She was confused. But it wasn't a confusion because of the alcohol. It was confusion as to her own uh, lifestyle, her own uh, confusion of combining things together. But her debauchery was at an end. After all these centuries, now in this chapter, her debauchery is coming to an end and she is awaiting her judgment. He was astonished when he looked at it and well, he ought to be. For the angel unfolding to him the mystery of it all said, the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Revelation 17 18. Now, interestingly enough, it says that she is a woman, which represents a church, but yet it also says she's a great city. Huh. Could a church and a great city be combined? Generally speaking, a great city represents a a political unit, right? And it's interesting that this woman would reign on a city of seven hills, it will tell us later in another part of the scripture. And so, what are we talking about? We're talking about a religio-political system. Nine times in Revelation, we find the expression, the great city, as applied to this apostate system. And the woman, get this now, it's the same power, same power, the beast and the woman are the same power, What's the difference? And the city is the same power. What's the difference? A woman represents an ecclesiastical power, a church. 
whereas a beast represents a political power. When you combine them and have church and state combined, you have a religio-political system where you have the woman riding the beast. You see? And as we look at it, in this symbol, we find the complete union of church and state and all whose names were not written in the book of life are amazed as they witness the rise and the influence of this tremendous religio-political power described as the beast that was and is not and yet is. Hmm, sounds like a tongue twister in verse 8. It was, then it wasn't, and now it is again. Let's look at verse 6. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints. So this woman or church would be a persecuting church with a long history of persecutions and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, those who gave their lives for Christ. Thus we we think about the saints under the altar who are crying out, how long is this going to go on? And the Lord says, you've got to be patient and wait a little longer. There are still more who are to give their lives And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. As we move from verse 7 to 18, the first part described what she was like. Now it talks about her fate and her destruction. The great harlot is now being dealt with. And in verse 7 it says, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? In plain words, why are you so upset? What What are you wondering about? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that thou sawest, in verse 8, was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now notice, from the foundations of the world, the book of life has been in existence. Isn't that interesting? God knows ahead of time. Now that leads us to another word that people get all misconstrued. That is the word predestination. From that text, there would be some who would say, see, your name's in the book, or it isn't a book, you don't have a chance. Nothing you can do about it, so sit back and enjoy whatever your fate is. No. Predestination means God foresaw those who would accept his invitation. They still have the power of choice. Remember what I said before, the devil votes against you, God votes for you, and you have the deciding third vote. Whether or not you will be among those who are in the book or out of the book of life. And from Revelation, we find that you can get your name taken out of the book of life if you want it. All you have to do is mess around with the book of Revelation. It tells us at the end chapter. Here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains Ah, the city of seven hills, remember? The 
The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now, a mountain can represent a government. We talk about the, the, uh, the mountain of God, Mount Zion. That is the seat of God's government, right? So apparently, these seven heads represent seven, not only hills of Rome, but we find also that there are seven different kingdoms that have been used by the dragon power to try to do in God's people. Notice verse 10. There are seven kings. Five are fallen. Five of those who are doing the will of Satan. Those five kingdoms or kings have fallen. One is now and the other is yet to come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short time. Now notice that last king does not last for centuries. He only reigns for a short period of time, but it will be an intense period of time. Look at verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seventh, of the seven that goeth into perdition. So it talks about an eighth king who grows out of these seven. In verse 12, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receiveth power as kings one hour with the beast. They're going to have it for one hour. Now isn't it interesting because the, the plagues fell for one day, Could this be one prophetic hour? If this is one prophetic hour, a prophetic hour is equivalent to, anybody know? Remember we talked about silence in heaven for space of half an hour? How long did we say half an hour was? If I remember correctly, A half an hour was a week, right? So an hour would be about two weeks, 14 or 15 days. Am I correct, Pastor? As we look at this, it's a short period of time. And look at verse 14. These kings that it's talking about would make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called the chosen and the faithful. These are the ones that are identified as the children of God or the people of God, those that are faithful. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the whore sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast These shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. We find that the very people who would help to build up this Babylonian queen will eventually turn on her. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. 
Now notice the beast with the seven heads. At the time of this prophecy, uh, had the time of this prophecy had a special application. Five of the seven heads of the beast were fallen. While it might not be wise to be dogmatic about the specific identity of these heads, yet it is significant that there are seven different and distinct powers that are introduced in scriptures by prophetic symbols. These are clearly indicated. Babylon was the lion in Daniel 7, 4. Persia was the bear in verse 5. Grisha was the leopard in verse 6. Pagan Rome, with its ten horns, was the beast that was in verse 7. Papal or ecclesiastical Rome, the seven-horned beast of Revelation 13. And also we find other horns. The horn that spoke great words, the little horn, with blasphemies as mentioned in 7, 8, and Revelation 13, 2 and 5. We also find the Bible talking about another beast, a lamb-like beast that had two horns, right? We talked about that when we talked about the U.S. in prophecy. What did it symbolize? It symbolized republicanism and democracy, the separation of church and state, a land without a king and a land without a pope, separation of church and state. And we find also the last great confederacy of evil, this is the scarlet beast that's mentioned in 17.3. So different horns represented different, different uh, kingdoms or powers. It also mentioned the great red dragon. Now the great red dragon in Revelation 12 cannot be the symbol of any one power. For while it represents pagan Rome's attack on the infant Jesus when he was born through Herod, we find that later verses in that chapter show its warfare against God's last day people. So the dragon is not a single power. It's actually Satan working through various powers. In reality, it covers the whole period occupied by all of these peace powers. For behind every political attack upon the people of God is the dragon or the prince of evil. Now, I'm going to make a statement here, and you feel perfectly free to challenge me on it after the meeting, okay? But every major movement, not only in the past, but even in the present, every major movement in the world has behind it a theology. Think of it. What is the theology behind atheism? God does not exist. What is the theology behind Christianity? God does exist. What is the theology behind evolution? God did not create the world, as the Bible says. Theism and creationism says he did. You look at socialism, it has a theology behind it. 
Nazism has a theology behind it. Communism has a theology behind it. And what is a theology? It boils back to religion. It's a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. It's just being manifested in different ways through society. And you will find that every major movement, if you look back behind the scenes far enough, you will find that there's a political uh, implication up front, but behind it, there will be a theological movement. And I see that going on in the world today. Our American foreign policy is governed by a theology. So is that of the other nations about us. And who is helping to facilitate Cuba and the United States getting together? It's a theologian, isn't it? And as we look at these things, we can see that behind the scenes, there are spiritual forces at work. Even ancient Egypt was spoken of as a dragon. But the apocalyptic prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, which unfold the reign of the Gentile powers, begin with the overthrow of the throne of Judah. Overthrowing God and his people so that Satan and his policies can come in. You will see this struggle in in the French Revolution. You will see atheism struggling against apostate religion. We talked about that. Atheism gained the upper hand. And then all of a sudden, the apostate religion threw it over and the world has wandered after the beast. Even within our own nation, the movement toward liberalism, the kingdom of the south has been overthrown. Now it's time for the kingdom of the north to come in with conservatism and bringing people back to religion of human manufacturing. You see, this goes back and forth. The struggle between the left and the right. And we see this. It doesn't matter what your political affiliations are or even your religious affiliation. We see this happening because there is the great controversy that's going on over the minds of men. And it comes from ancient times until the battle is finally completed when Christ comes. He brings an end to it. And so we look at this and we find that Judah, the city of God, should have been the light of the world. But it falls. And what comes in? Babylonian Nebuchadnezzar and the religious beliefs of the Babylonians, and the rule of the Gentiles over the people of God, you see. This occurred under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, thus clearing the way for Gentile rule in the world. Jesus spoke of this as the time of the Gentiles in Luke 21, 24. Now the Gentile times are terminating now. In this prophecy, we see five of these powers have already passed. Through all the centuries, the dragon or the devil 
was waiting for the child to be born. The devil was waiting for Christ. Why was he waiting? Because he had been foretold that Christ was coming when? Back in Genesis 3.15. Right after Adam and Eve fell, God gave Adam and Eve the prophecy that the seed would gain victory over the dragon and his people. But the devil would have the first strike. And so when Jesus was born, the devil strikes. But ultimately, it would be the the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. You see. So this was foretold. The devil's not dumb. He's read the Bible better than you have. And he was looking forward to the coming of Christ. The worst thing he could have done, he did. And that was to kill Jesus. Because once Jesus was dead, he had a bigger problem. Because all those people that were in the grave, he claimed as his. But he says, "Uh uh-oh, if he gets out of that grave, I'm in big trouble. Because not only will he come out, but he's going to take all my captives out on me. And he took some of them with him, didn't he, when he went up to heaven. And so we find that the devil knew these things and was trying to head them off at the pass. You wonder why the Bible's written in cryptic language? Because the devil's looking over the shoulder of the prophets as they're writing to see what he can do to circumvent them. And so it says here, He was therefore in existence before the Christian era. The devil was around long before the Christian era. And so was this dragon power that he represents. But he will make his most severe attack upon the remnant or the last day church. This dragon power is a symbol of more than pagan Rome. As we have already emphasized in chapter 6, John was brought forward in vision and was witnessing the events of the judgment. At this time, that great scene opened in heaven, 1844. John now brings us up to the time of 1844 when the sanctuary moves into the great Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, moving toward the judgment. The papacy was at a low ebb at this time. Why? Because in 1798, it received a fatal wound, right? Only a few years earlier, she had received her deadly wound. And at the time this prophecy of Revelation 17 has its special application, five of those great powers had already fallen. Babylon is gone. Persia is gone. Greece is gone. Pagan Rome has fallen. And now Papal Rome falls in 1798. The deadly wound having been inflicted upon the papacy in that year. So what does that mean? It means the one that is. What is that talking about? Now the prophet watched. It says that one is, that is, it was existent after 1798. Now, notice in 1798, the papacy did not die. The papacy received a wound. And it went into hospice temporarily. 
Not too many people come out of hospice, but it managed to. Matter of fact, I am right now reading a book, fascinating book. It's called God's Bankers. And it's written by a Catholic who, his mother is Catholic, his father was Jewish. And he talks about the, uh, the interaction between the papacy, not only the papacy and the Jews, but also the papacy financially from different powers and how it was maneuvering to get back its papal states that it lost and so forth. And he brings us up to 1929 and he starts telling some of the intricacies behind what was going on in Rome to restore the power of the papacy. And Eugenio Pacelli, Eugenio Pacelli, who became Pope Pius XII, the Pope under whom I was born, and why he would not do anything to help the, the Jews who were suffering. It's very interesting. I haven't finished the book, so you'll have to wait till I get to the end. But nonetheless, we find that during this one power, this one head, it said that it would suffer, but it would not go out of existence. The Revolutionary War in America overthrew the divine right of kings, but it also overthrew the divine right of the majorities. The divine right of the majorities. In plain words, the church, let's take the French Revolution, the church had sided in with the monarchy. And when the monarchy fell, guess what happened to the church? It fell too. Do you know that in the Civil War, the American Civil War, the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican, was on the side of the South? Most people aren't aware of that. During World War II, the Vatican, even though it says it was neutral, Pius XII was actually working more in behalf of the Germans. And when the war was over, it was the Vatican that helped the Nazi war criminals get out of Germany and make it to South America. Now, you may challenge me on that. That's fine. I've got documentation from multiple sources. My friends, we see here what's happening behind the scenes. Follow the money. Prelates and popes have had no place in this growing nation. And it has been the desire for the papacy to gain control of this new world. Because it was a nation without a pope and without a king. That's what makes it so interesting when America unites church and state and develops an image to the beast because it's contrary to its nature. Democracy had its real opportunity in America. And, as we've already noticed, she arose at a time that the papacy went down. As the papacy went down, America came up. Yet, startling as it may seem, this prophecy reveals that these great principles of liberty will ultimately be abandoned and that 
what was free Protestant America will actually become an ally of Rome and make an image to the beast, which had the wound by the sword and did live. Pius Twelfth, like I say, the Pope under whom I was born, I can't remember if it was Leo or if it was a couple of Piuses before him. I think it was Leo, who said, Leo what? He would have been the 13th, I think. He actually made a statement, and he said that democracy was, uh, democracy and freedom of a religion was ridiculous, and that it was against the Catholic Church. This is why I say, to think that the Catholic Church is the defender of religious liberty in America is putting the fox in charge of the chicken coop. And it's only until they can gain enough power. Religious liberty, as interpreted by the Catholic Church, is religious liberty for Catholics. The rest are heretics. Have you ever read the pledge of the Knights of Columbus? I have it. Matter of fact, I have it on slide. You ought to read it. I also have the Pledge of the Jesuits. You've read that? Yeah. This idea about the church being against abortion. It's against abortion. But if you're a heretic, things change. Anyway, we need, we need to realize that we are talking about demonic forces that are behind the scenes that are playing around with powers. But I got good news for you. Our God is more powerful than the devil. And God can whip that right around. I can tell you some interesting things that have happened recently as evidence of that. Protestant America, that's what makes it so strange that it would build an image to the beast. Do you realize that democracy is the only form of government that can vote itself into slavery? Think about it. Slaves can't vote themselves out of slavery, can they? But a free people can vote themselves into slavery. And that's also true of religious slavery. We would be blind if we failed to see that this very thing is taking place before our eyes even today. The issues, and of course, this note I have on here is from Roy Allen Anderson. And he wrote this many years ago when the issue of appointing an ambassador to the Vatican and the Vatican sending one to the U.S. The issue over the appointment of an ambassador to the Vatican is only one of many evidences of the reviving power of Rome. James H. Ryan, a Roman Catholic bishop of Omaha, defending Myron Taylor's appointment in 1940, wrote the following significant statement. Now, with the election of Pius XII now behind us, this is after he was elected, and the memory of the almost universal approbation it receives still fresh in the public mind, the place of the papacy in world affairs seems to stand out in bolder relief than at almost any other epoch in its long existence. In few periods of history have the popes exercised a larger influence 
an interesting phenomenon when one recalls the low political ebb to which the papacy had sunk in the middle of the last century, when on all sides reputable statesmen predicted its final and definite annihilation within their own lifetime. But from Leo, the, that would be Leo VIII, wouldn't it? From Leo VIII to Pius XII, much water has flowed under the bridge of international politics. From the time of the falling of the papacy in 1798 until Pope Pius XII, the papacy went from almost disappearing to a world power once again. What happened? Something must have taken place. Kingdoms that were kingdoms in the days of Pius IX are no more. And empires that seemed eternal then have collapsed. If history is any guide to the immediate future, state absolutism will not be more successful in its efforts to humble Rome than was the dominant political ideology of the 19th century. What he is saying is they tried to pull Rome down, but they didn't succeed. And the modern political powers isn't going to pull it down either. And you know what? The right, it isn't. The modern nations of the world are not going to pull Rome down. But God is, you see. And he will not last for centuries. True, much water has flowed under the bridge of international politics. And the foundation is being laid for the papacy's sudden rise to complete worldwide dominance. But the angel declared, when he cometh, he must continue a short space. When he recovers from his deadly wound, it will only be for a short time, according to Revelation 17.10. Never again will this power dominate the centuries as she did before. Her power will be great, but for a very short time. Verse 18. In the woman which thou sawest, that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth, that woman, that church, that reigned over the kings of the earth, is today gaining in power, gaining in influence, seeking to bring together people onto a world religion of her control. But you know, folks, we read not only chapter 17, but read chapter 18 and get the rest of the story. You see, chapter 17 and chapter 18 go together. And last week, I told you I would try to cover 17 and 18 together. And then when I realized how long I went on chapter 16 last week, I said, I can't put them through that again. Okay? And not only that, but there's just so much stuff in this, I can't even touch all that's in 17. So when we pick up next week with chapter 18, we'll get into a little bit more of how the Lord turns all of this around. All I know, my friends, is our God lives. We are not to be afraid for the future. We are to face it with faith. And I want to tell you, it's a wonderful time to be alive. The prophets looked forward to the day that you're living in, and they would have rejoiced 
to be able to be here to see it. Because not only does the evil forces go forth to gain ground, but God's people go forward and take the gospel to the world and help to reap out the righteous before the devil gets them. Isn't that good news? Praise God. Real quick summary. Verses 1 through 6, they describe the great harlot of chapter 17. Verses 7 through 18, they, it speaks there about the destruction of the great harlot. And then apostate religion will abound, but will fall at the second coming of Jesus.